Take a Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to start reading in verse 11 of Luke chapter 1. And there appeared unto him, that's unto Zacharias, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am old, for I'm an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for uh, the privilege we have of studying together. Pray today, Father God, as we open up your word, that you would guide our time. Pray that, Lord, we would learn from your word today that which you would have for us to learn, that you'd instruct us, Father God, into your truth, that as we leave here today, we might have been encouraged by your word, challenged by your word, blessed by its truth, Lord, that you might be exalted and praised. As always, Lord, I do pray that you give me wisdom, that I might be used of you. I might have the clarity of thoughts, that I might have that simplicity of speech, so that, Lord, your word might be clearly presented today. And do pray that you bless our time in your word, and, we, Lord, we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we start this morning, let's remember something about the time in which this book was written. So remember that at the first coming of Jesus Christ as a babe in the manger, it came at a time when Israel was going through the motions of worshipping God at the temple, going through the ceremonies, the ritual, the religion of the temple. But there had been no prophet, there had been no word from God for some 400 years at the time of writing of Luke chapter 1. There's a spiritual darkness covers the land of Israel as a result of the judgment of God against the nation of Israel because of their idolatry. The mighty legions of Rome under the iron fist of Caesar had stranglehold on the land of Israel and the chosen people of God were given limited access to the place where they could worship their God. made a limited ability to go up to the temple to pray as they pleased. Naturally, because the Roman legions had conquered Israel, their assumption was that Caesar, Mars, and their many other gods were more powerful than the God of Israel. But little did they know that they were pawns in the eternal plan of God to bring about the birth of Jesus, God's only Son, 
and bring the way of deliverance, the way of salvation to mankind, including the heathen Romans who were oppressing the nation of Israel at this time. And with the coming of the angel of the Lord to Zacharias, the angel Gabriel to Zacharias, God invades the silence and the darkness. And he intervenes in the course of history with the greatest love story that's ever been known. As we've considered the account of God intervening in the lives of men, our attention has been drawn firstly to Zacharias and Elizabeth who play such an important part in the unfolding plan of God's redemption. We said that there are at least four facts involved in the call of these two that when properly understood will lead to a proper response to the call of God and our lives. We've considered so far the first two of these four facts. We've noted that when God intervenes in our lives, God chooses the time. We then saw that God chooses the people. Now today we want to note the third factor here, that when God intervenes in our lives, he chooses the method. Here in verse 11 to 18. When God chose to end his 400 years of silence, he chose to use an angel to make the announcement. And when God chose to call man, he chose Zacharias. When God chose to prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus, he chose John the Baptist. As we consider that, we can see clearly that when God seeks to have his will done, when God seeks to accomplish his purpose in our lives, in the life of mankind, he chooses the method. And we also understand and need to understand that God doesn't always use the same method. Just because he used this method here doesn't mean that you'll always use this method. Just because he worked in a way in our life in a certain way doesn't mean that he'll always work that way. But we need to understand also that God's methods are always best. That you and I cannot improve on what God has determined to be the methodology of doing something. His way is always best. And so as we come to this passage today in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 18, and we consider the fact that God chooses the method, I want you to note firstly with me then, Zacharias' encounter. Zacharias' encounter, verse 11. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Now we've seen that Zacharias and Elizabeth were a family of the tribe of Levi, that both of them had a priestly heritage, if you like. They came from the tribe of Levi. They came from the priestly tribe. And as a priest, we know the last time that Zacharias was a man who faithfully performed his duty. He faithfully went through his, uh, went about his duty to the Lord, the duty of the temple, the duty of a priest. He did his duty faithfully day in and day out. And ultimately here, he did his duty of burning incense in the temple, look in verse 8 and 9, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God, in order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. 
Zacharias was fulfilling at this moment in Luke chapter 1, he was fulfilling God's purpose for his life. Now this event of him going up to the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense would have taken place at either 9 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. For that was the two times where this sacrifice was made. Now we don't know which time he was ministering. We don't know whether he had the early shift at 9 o'clock or whether he had the afternoon shift at 3 o'clock. We don't know. God doesn't tell us. But we do know that he was there performing his duty in the temple. And we do know that while he was standing at the altar of incense, that an angel of the Lord appears to him. That's verse 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zacharias is standing here as the priest of God before, on, on behalf of God's people to offer up the prayers of the saints. And in the middle of his duty, a duty that he'd probably never again get the privilege of performing in his lifetime, because remember he'd been chosen by lot to perform this sacred duty of burning incense before the, uh, on the altar of incense before the Holy of Holies in the holy place. And so he's doing what other priests before him have done, and he's going through the, mo in the most of the duty, doing the job that God's called him to. And this was something he'd been waiting for all of his life, waiting for Phil. And while he's faithfully performing his duty, he's interrupted by an angel. And the angel informs him that his prayer is heard. That's verse 13. It says, And the angel said to him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Thy prayer is heard. Now I'm sure that Zacharias never dreamed that he and Elizabeth would be used as a vessel of God to bring about God's will in the nation of Israel. Even though they'd faithfully prayed that God would give them a child, that they faithfully prayed throughout all their years till now they're aged, they prayed for a child, they prayed for a son. I'm sure they never expected that God was going to use them in a special way in the unveiling of the plan of God of redemption. That they never never came to the place where they would be parents, and also they come to the place, I'm sure, now that they're old, where they'd come to the place where they thought they'd never be parents. That they would never have a child who would grow up and become an adult. But least of all, I'm sure that they never thought that even if God did give them a child, that that child would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the forerunner of the Messiah, that God would send them a son who would be John the Baptist, who would be the one who proclaimed the coming of Messiah. But you know, God chooses the method. These might seem like the least likely couple to be chosen of God. And this might be the least like, uh, unlikely way in which God would reveal it to them. And, and it seems like that, you know, their son would be the least likely one that would be the forerunner of Christ. But God is the one who chooses the method. And we need to remember that when the archangel appeared and spoke to Zacharias, that he and Elizabeth were both aged. They were well increased in years they were not a young couple anymore they were beyond childbearing age and that's why Zacharias wasn't prepared for this kind of announcement look what he says in verse 18 and Zacharias said unto the angel whereby shall I know this for I am old 
And my wife is well stricken in years. And so when this announcement happened, Zacharias could hardly believe it. According to their age, the birth of a natural son would be humanly impossible. They'd come to the place in their life whereby they'd resigned themselves to the fact they were never going to have a child. But they were soon to learn, as we all must learn, that when God chooses to accomplish his will, he's the one who chooses the method. And as Luke one thirty seven says, with God nothing shall be impossible. They were about to learn, as we almost learned, that we serve an almighty, all-powerful God. We serve the God of the impossible. And that's why we should never underestimate the power of God. We should never underestimate the power of God accomplishing His will. When you and I pray to God, you and I are calling upon God to unleash His power upon that situation that we're praying about. We're praying to an all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God, the God of the impossible, to do His will. And we should never underestimate the power of God. That's why we should never question His methods. Because when God does answer our prayers and God does intervene, we may not understand how He's doing it or why He's doing it, the way He's doing it, But we need to believe that it's God's best because God's methods are always right. You see, what we're called upon is simply be faithful and let God work out the rest. Next we see here Zacharias' fear in verse 12. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. You know, when the angel appears, Gabriel appears to him by the altar of incense, his reaction is the same reaction that you and I would have, I'm sure, if an angel appeared in this place today. He was afraid. I think if while I was preaching an angel was to appear behind me, there would be a lot of startled looks, there would be a lot of gasps, there would be a lot of, uh, wow, okay, thought of there's an angel and uh, I'd be wondering what's going on, but uh, it it would surprise us. We'd be terrified. We would be afraid. And we can understand his fear. And we can especially understand his fear for his knowledge, to his knowledge, none of his contemporaries had ever seen an angel. Now remember, he is fulfilling a duty that every priest before him, some priest before him have performed the same duty. Okay, so lots have been drawn. Priests have been allocated the job of burning incense on the altar in the holy place. They've gone up and done it at 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They've done it year in, year out, year in, year out. And to his knowledge, none of his contemporaries have ever met an angel. At least they've not mentioned it to him. And you would think that uh, an event like that would be something that a priest would explain to the other priests that had happened to him as he encountered an angel in the holy place. To his knowledge, none of his contemporaries have done and seen this. And also we need to understand the angel appeared to Zacharias was not some romantic figure that you and I see portrayed in art for us. Nor was this a naked baby with wings, which is how some people portray angels. 
You need to remember that this was a glorious, fearful, and awesome creature. Gabriel is the archangel. He is a spectacular being. And what's more, I'm sure that Zacharias, being a priest, was aware of the fact that divine judgment was one of the reasons why an angel appeared to people. Read the Old Testament. One of the reasons why angels appeared to people in the Old Testament was to issue a warning of impending judgment from God. Now put all that together. None of his contemporaries have ever seen an angel to his knowledge. This angel is not so romantic figure, but this is the archangel Gabriel in all of his glory and power and majesty standing before him. He knows in Scripture the one reason why angels appear before people is because they come to issue judgment upon them. Is it any wonder that he was troubled? Is it any wonder that he's filled with fear? Zacharias must have wondered when he looked to the side there and saw the angel standing next to him at the side of the altar. He must have wondered if he was about to be judged. Matthew Henry put it this way, perhaps when he saw the angel, he was afraid lest he came to rebuke him for some mistake or miscarriage. No, saith the angel, fear not. I have no ill tidings to bring thee from heaven. Fear not, but compose thyself, that thou mayest with a sedate and even spirit receive the message I have to deliver thee. It says he was troubled. You know, the word troubled here means filled with terror. His knees are knocking together. His stomach is churning. His palms are sweaty. He's terrified. The presence of the angel causes him to tremble. Fear fell upon him. He was terrified. And therefore, like most angels in the Bible, the first thing the angel has to do is to say some words of comfort to the human recipient of this visitation by an angel. And so in verse 13 we read, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias. They must have been comforting words, mustn't they? Fear not. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to condemn you. Fear not. Now you and I may not see angels today, but you and I do dwell in the presence of the Lord. And you know, we ought to have a similar attitude to the presence of the Lord in our life as Zacharias had to the presence of an angel in the temple that day. We ought to stand in awe of God. If Zacharias trembles in the presence of an angel, surely as saved and sinful beings, we should tremble before our God. You know, if we would have a genuine awe, a genuine respect, a genuine fear of our Lord, it would make a great difference in our lives, wouldn't it? And this presence of the angel in Zacharias' life this day is going to make a great difference in his life. The angel says to Zacharias, fear not. And after assuring Zacharias that he has nothing to fear, immediately he speaks peace to Zacharias. What he does is he tells him the amazing news. That God has a plan. And that plan involves Zacharias and Elizabeth, who are going to have 
a son. Look in verse 13 and 14. And the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. And thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have great, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. They were there a son, but now they're going to have a son. They were there a son, they faithfully prayed to God throughout their formative years. And now, thirdly, Zacharias' prayer is answered. Zacharias' prayer is answered. The angel says unto him, stop being afraid, Zacharias. If you like, cheer up, Zacharias. God's going to give you a son. Therefore, Zacharias, you need to have joy and gladness. It's great news. There were a couple who had faithfully year after year prayed. And now a son would be born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Their prayer is about to be answered. He's even given the name of his son. His son's to be named John. Now you can imagine, can't you, how excited Zacharias must have been when he heard that he and Elizabeth were about to have a son, that God was about to answer their prayer, that they prayed for so long that he would be excited. Or at least he should have rejoiced. But instead, Zacharias responds in unbelief. Look in verse 18. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife well stricken in years. Instead of rejoicing, instead of being excited, instead of running from the temple home to his wife and say to Elizabeth, Our prayers have been answered, Zacharias looks at the angel and he says, Thanks for the promise. But knowing the condition of myself and knowing the condition of my wife, I'm going to need a sign to prove it. That's what he says. He says, whereby shall I know this? Uh, You've got an angel standing next to you, Zacharias. Uh, No priest before you has had this experience while they're offering up incense on the altar of incense. You've got an angel standing before you. In fact, not just an angel. You've got Gabriel standing before you, the archangel. And he says to you, you're about to have a son. And you say, show us a sign. Bit bizarre if you ask me. I'm sure it wasn't that Zacharias doesn't want to believe this. I mean, you don't pray for most of your life for a child and not believe your prayer. I'm sure that Zacharias doesn't, it's not that he doesn't want to believe this, but it's more likely that he is probably protecting himself from disappointment by not setting his expectations too high. You see, they're both aged now. They're both beyond childbearing years And it seems to me that Zacharias has come to believe that because of their age, their prayer would never be answered. It's not that he doesn't believe God can answer prayer. It's just that he has come to the place where by being so old, he has resigned himself to the fact that the prayer that he had when he was younger is never going to be answered. He's never going to have a child. So instead of rejoicing, he responds in unbelief. 
As I thought about that this week, I wonder how many times we rob ourselves of the joy of answered prayer by a similar belief, a similar thought. You know, we pray, but we don't really believe the Lord will answer so that we won't be disappointed when he doesn't answer us. Now, maybe I'm just Robinson Crusoe here and I'm on my own and nobody else ever prays like that, but you know, I pray like that. I know sometimes the words coming out of my mouth as I pray, I know in my heart what I'm thinking is, well, it probably won't happen, but it can't do any harm to pray. That seems to me what Zacharias has done here. They've prayed, but they've come to the place now whereby to save them being disappointed, they've resigned themselves to the fact that God may never answer their prayer. And we do the same. But you know, James chapter 1 and verse 6 says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. We're to ask in faith, we're to pray believing without wavering, without a change of attitude. We're to do it in faith, believing God will answer. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. When we pray, we need to have confidence that God will hear us and he will answer according to his will. You know, sometimes we may have prayed for something for a long time. We've prayed for the salvation of a spouse, or the salvation of a child. We've prayed for God leading our lives. We've prayed that God would bring that special person along in our life. But after years of heartfelt prayer, we simply give up in discouragement. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, the Lord says this, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and faint not. And not to faint. The words not to faint mean don't lose heart. Often we fail in praying because we lose heart, don't we? You see, God didn't say he would answer when we prayed. He said he would answer according to his will. That means he may, we may have to wait for the answer. Nor did God ever promise to answer according to the method that we want him to answer it. He says, pray according to my will and I'll answer it. So God's method must always be the means by which he answers the prayer. And you and I get discouraged. You and I lose heart. You and I faint in our prayer. We waver because we're waiting for God to answer now we want the answer immediately, not when God wants to answer. And we want God to answer in the way that we want it answered, not according to the way God wants to answer it. That's why we're to pray in faith with nothing wavering. We offer our petition before the Lord, saying as he said in the prayer that he taught his disciples, not my will, but thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be asking God's will to be done on earth in my life, as it would be done in heaven. Or as Christ prayed, not my will, but thy will. We need to pray that the Lord will have his way. He will accomplish his will. And so when we pray, we pray asking the Lord for his will to be done. But we get so discouraged when we pray because of unbelief. We become discouraged and then we no longer pray as we should. 
And when we're in that place, we sometimes begin in the smallest of ways to doubt that God loves us, that God cares for us. But you know, God always loves us. God always cares about us. God's love for us does never cease. God's care of us never ceases. God wants what's best for you and I. As his children, he wants what's best for us. He always loves us. He always cares for us. That's why we should continue in prayer while we wait for God to answer. And it seems that this, at least in part, is the reason why Zacharias' reaction to the angel was one of unbelief. He basically said to the angel, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't you know that we're both old? Don't you know the, the genetics of humanity that as you get older, the possibility of having children is diminishing and ultimately you can't have kids? Don't you know that? Now, Zacharias should have rejoiced. That's what the angel told him to do in verse 14. And thou shalt have joy and gladness. Many shall rejoice at his birth. He should have rejoiced. He should have been excited. For God had answered his prayer. And what an answer. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear a son. Yes, in her old age. Yes, when she's way beyond childbearing age. Yes, when you are old and it's not possible, physically possible for you to have a child. Yes, God's going to do the impossible, Zacharias. Rejoice. And the angel said they would have joy and gladness. And yet Zacharias is standing there saying, show us a sign. And what's more, he tells him, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Not only should you rejoice over the knowledge that your wife is about to have a son, not only should you rejoice, but many, that child you're going to have is going to be such a child that many are going to rejoice at his birth. You know, John's great work was prepare the way for Messiah. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of, his, of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready the pe a people prepared for the Lord. John's great work was prepare the way for Messiah by turning many hearts to God before Messiah came. The son of Zacharias and Elias, Zacharias and Elizabeth, should have made them rejoice. And what's more, the heart, many will be glad because of who he is, because he's coming to prepare the way of the Lord. He's about to fulfill the prophetic word of Isaiah. He's going to be that voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's going to make straight the paths. He's going to make the way open for the Messiah to come. And this is remarkable. We know John the Baptist was a different kind of man, a different kind of preacher. He was probably not what the world was expecting for the voice crying in the wilderness. Israel was looking for the voice crying in the wilderness, but they weren't expecting John. 
mean, think about it. If I walked around town wearing beggar's clothes, eating grasshoppers and other insects, and telling people to repent, many would be ashamed of me. Some of you would be ashamed of me. Well, I probably would be hanging ahead head in shame, <laughs> wondering what I was up to. Ashamed to look at me, ashamed about what I was eating. Some would even be ashamed about my preaching because none of it would be respectable. But, you know, that's the kind of man that God chose to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was dressed as sackcloth and ashes, eating grasshoppers and other insects, preaching repent, every one of you, for the Lord is at hand, and then baptized them in the Jordan River. That's the kind of man God chose to prepare the way for the coming of the Savior. Remember, it was John who would announce in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And you see, often, when God moves, his methods are not the kind of methods that you and I would expect. Of all the methods God could have chosen to announce the coming of the Savior, he chose Zacharias and Elizabeth, these un inspicuous people who weren't so there weren't any special he wasn't the high priest he was just one of the priests but they chose Zacharias and Elizabeth and he chose John the Baptist and what we see here is that clearly when God chooses to act when he seeks to have his will done he's the one who chooses the methods when God chose to send the savior he chose the method he did not choose a king born in a palace. He did not send a knight in shining armor who would rally men around him. He sent a baby born in a dirty stable and announced it to lowly shepherds who were watching over their sheep by night. There was no glory. There was no riches. There was no fame, just a lowly birth. When God chose to save humanity from their sin, of all the ways that he could have chosen, he chose a shameful wooden cross where Christ was brutally crucified. When he chose to spread the message of salvation to the entire world, he, did, he could have chosen great theologians and great pulpiteers, but he chose to do his work through the most unlikely assortment of men and women like you and me. And he chose the most unlikely of institutions, the church, to accomplish his will in this world. Some might think there are better ways of doing it. In fact, many people today will say the church is out of date, that preaching is old school and boring, that witnessing is just out of fashion. God doesn't, just doesn't need us to do his work. Some might even suggest that we should look at doing things differently. But we must always remember it's God who chooses the method, not us. Look in 1 Corinthians, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 20. It says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 
For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preachers to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. But under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many mobile are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of, this, of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are, which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and all things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know, when God chooses to act, God chooses the method. It says there in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. When it comes to building up the saints, he tells us that we're to preach the word, be instant in season, as season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine, according to 2 Timothy 4.2. You see, God has chosen the methods today just as he did back then in Luke chapter 1. And you and I cannot improve upon God's methods. God has chosen for you and I to pray. And when we pray without ceasing, when you and I pray without wavering, when you and I pray according to his will, God answers our prayers according to to his will, according to his methods. When you and I preach the gospel, that's God's methodology for day, for reaching, through the foolishness of preaching, those that believe. When the preachers get in this pulpit to preach, this is God's methodology for instructing the saints, for building them up in the faith through the word of God. God chooses the methods, and we can improve on that. The least likely candidates to be parents of John the Baptist or Zacharias and Elizabeth, the least likely candidate to be the forerunner of Christ preparing the way is John the Baptist. But when God chooses the method, then you and I ought to praise God for that method. When God broke the silence by sending the angel Gabriel to earth, when he chose to shake things up with the greatest news ever known to man, with the greatest love story that has ever been told, he chose the time, he chose the people, he chose the method. And even today, God still chooses the method by which he chooses to accomplish his will. We can improve upon it. We need to remember he has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And he has chosen to accomplish his work through sinners saved by grace, just like you and me. Therefore, if we know the Savior, we must give ourselves to serve the Lord. We must give of ourselves to the Master. We must give of our best to the Master. We allow God to use us by surrendering our will to his will because his methods are always best. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Father God, for Zacharias, Elizabeth. We thank you, Father, for this insight into Zacharias offering up incense on the altar in the holy place before the Holy of Holies and Gabriel appearing to him and Zacharias's underwhelming response to the answer for his prayer. Lord, help us to remember that when we pray, we're praying for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that, Lord, your way is always the right way, the best way. We can improve upon your methods. We simply need to do your will. Commend your word to our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name.